Incumbent logistics providers like FedEx or UPS and postal services and so on were, were still stuck in their established systems. They have business structures, middle management whose carriers depend on these business divisions and so on, and it's hard to break that open and change. So that's the actual main reason for disruption or Schumpeter style creative destruction, and that's why we are very slowly changing our logistics. Welcome to We Talk IoT a regular series of podcasts from the editors of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. This podcast is brought to you by Avnet Silica in cooperation with Microsoft. Hi, I'm Tim Cole, the editor-in-chief of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. The last mile of the delivery chain is a huge challenge. But the closer a package gets to its destination, the more complex and expensive the logistics become. Not coincidentally, the last 50 feet are the true bottleneck for e-commerce growth, experts say. One of them is Marcel Weiss, an experienced journalist and author of a major article on the subject in our current issue. He's here today to tell us how startups and online retailers are striving to close that final gap. Marcel, everybody's doing it these days, namely buying stuff online. E-commerce has been growing for decades and no end in sight, but the actual delivery of purchases is still handled by an infrastructure designed and built for another, namely the mail order age. Why is this so? Well, building out a logistics infrastructure means huge upfront costs, so companies are shying away from that. Only fairly recently um, have online retailers begun to build out their own logistics operations at every point of the supply chain. Here in the Western Hemisphere, of course, Amazon is obviously at forefront here. Uh, but Chinese giants like JD.com are also starting to expand internationally with their logistics solutions and uh, want to become uh, service providers worldwide. And I mean... Incumbent logistic providers like FedEx or UPS and postal services and so on were, were still stuck in their established systems. They have business structures, middle management whose carriers depend on these business divisions and so on, and it's hard to break that open and change. So that's the actual main reason for disruption or Schumpeter style creative destruction, and that's why we are very slowly changing our logistics. Used to be the last mile was the big bottleneck. But in your article, you argue that it's really the last 50 feet that caused the most problems. Yes, well, the so-called last mile is an abstraction, you know. There are several steps uh, that are summarized below this. But when you look at where the actual time constraint is, it's when the package changes hands, you know, when the end consumer gets their delivery. Here lie all the challenges. It's been said that around 25 to 50% of the overall logistics costs to getting actual package delivered are right there. So here lie the challenges, but also tremendous opportunities, I think, when it comes to services that towards end consumers. Of course, one obvious solution would be to develop autonomous robotic carts that will deliver stuff to from the local fulfillment center. Those autonomous robots would only would only make a change, would only make it make an impact as a part of a more rigorous rethinking of the current logistics systems. Your autonomous robot still depends on the customer being home and accepting the package when you operate it it the same way today's deliveries are working. Maybe once you're reaching scale and building those robots 
uh, is cheap enough um, to throw as many as you need at a problem, robots can be timed to delivery at the exact moment the customer specifies. You know, like you have the robots just lurking around the corner until the customer is ready. But seriously, we are a long way from autonomous robots delivering goods and making an impact on this topic that we're talking about here. You need the tech, you need the infrastructure, and you need new regulation for this to work. You can't have hundreds of thousands of robots roaming the city's sidewalks besides scooters, bikes, and you know pedestrians, which is still a thing last time I checked. It seems there are a lot of startups interested in bridging this last gap between retailers and consumers. Tell us about some of them. Well, sure. Besides already mentioned robot startups, you have, um, I think, very interesting companies like Picnic from the Netherlands. Um, this is bringing back the old milkman model with fixed rules at fixed times. And this provides predictability to both sides, the company and the customers, and it decreases costs dramatically in the process. They're only delivering the groceries right now in select local markets, Netherlands and Germany, but this could obviously grow into a major logistics provider. And besides these developments that we already mentioned, I'm personally actually waiting for two things to happen right now. First thing is a container moment at the last mile, the last 50 feet. And, you know, the container revolutionized logistics. You can't overstate the impact the container and the falling standardization of global supply chains had. Without the container, we would not have globalization today as, as, as we are seeing. Um, there are some startups working on this. For example, Pick A Chip here from Germany. Um, well, not many. The other thing I'm waiting for, and I think this may actually be related to the container moment I was just talking about, is innovation on the locker side. Uh, I mean, you, you know, like parcel stations as destinations. Um, I'm thinking here about solutions that may, may be fully loaded and get deployed temporarily until everyone got their orders out parcel stations that are built right into homes and in, in right into apartment buildings. As you said, robots on crammed sidewalks or in busy bike lanes don't sound like something the populace and therefore the regulators and authorities will accept. Are local traffic rules and bylaws a major roadblock on the path to automated delivery? Yes, absolutely. For example, uh, uh, as I wrote about in my article, the REV1 from Refraction AI is, is a bit larger on the scout with Starship robots, but of course still far smaller than a traditional delivery ran and, and small enough, and they built it small enough so that it still qualifies under most e-bike regulations in the companies, at least for, for the US. This is very clever, but of course, or rather obviously is a hack of the current regulation, and you can't scale that before people start complaining about cramped sidewalks and bike lanes. Essentially, I think we need a larger discourse on how to allocate our precious public space. Cars, like as in private transportation vehicles, are by default right now getting almost all the public space in cities. And I think that has to change for several obvious reasons, and a better, more sustainable logistics ecosystem is one of those reasons. Looking upwards, drones could maybe be the answer here again. But again, red tape seems to be in the way. Yes, absolutely. Um, the tech is ready for some time now. But would you want to have a drone fall on your head or the head of one of your loved ones? I certainly don't. Um, airspace in densely populated areas needs to be safely regulated to avoid tragedies. And I, I don't think that means drones are out of the picture for the time being. But I think we are still a long way off in uh, regard. But at the same time, when we look at, uh, towards China, for example, JD.com, China's biggest online retailer, is developing a drone for carrying as much as one ton 
to and from poorly accessible rural areas and remote villages. So I think there's a lot of opportunities and use cases for drones, but I'm not sure about uh, cities. Successful delivery automation, you write, calls for a more holistic approach than just robots on the sidewalks. Getting to a customer's front door and delivering the package may involve opening a gate or moving around a flower bed, which is why autonomous delivery usually means the customer has to come to the sidewalk to pick up their package, or the robot must be accompanied by a human. What is the solution, do you think? Well, I think where we're generally speaking two lessons here first one solution for the time being may be with automation is augmented like you said delivery fulfilled by humans even if the last 50 feet or you know like the last 50 feet are worked by a human the overall process can still hugely benefit from increased efficiency through automation but secondly i think the whole delivery process can and should be rebuilt to eliminate these and other obstacles which you which you just mentioned and one big company that is trying to do this, that's Amazon, where we have all the building blocks right now. They're building them out. They have their own logistics operations. They are building lockers and Amazon hubs, which are parcel stations right in, in, in the home and in the apartment buildings. And they have other services like Key and Ring, and they are starting to com combine those to make delivery more convenient and more cost efficient. Amazon Key, as you just mentioned, uh, is supposed to bridge this final 50 feet, uh, but Key has run into obstacles of its own. Why? Yeah, that's, a, that's very interesting. Uh, when you look at Amazon, Amazon is, I think, we, it's, this is an organizational issue with Amazon. Amazon is built uh, as, as, uh, like, an, like a collection of a lot of profit centers which are not which are, um, optimizing their own operations. And I think we can see this here with, with Key and, and Ring and the scandals we're seeing. Because when you as a company want your customers to, to buy your smart locks and, and your, your webcams, you want them to feel safe with the with the services with the products you provide you want them you you want to look at privacy you want to you want to make sure that, that everything is tight and that's not at all what amazon is is doing up to now we're working with in the us with law enforcement with police departments um, have integrations that are let's say questionable and there have like uh, on the software side, we're integrating third-party SDKs that make it easier to get uh, for for data to get out, and uh, all this is, I think, um, very much a problem with the with the potential of this whole system that they're building here. But I think that's uh, that's very much an organizational issue with Amazon itself. I hear you saying that we aren't there yet, but we're getting there. The automated delivery is gathering momentum. What do you think will be the key developments in the foreseeable future? Well, I think we're going to see an acceleration at every point. We are going to see, we are already seeing a massive growth uh, in online retail e-commerce because of the pandemic, and this this is where comes a lot of challenges, a lot of opportunities on the logistics side, with just with overall demand, with overall volume that has to be moved. And uh, and there are also when it comes to automation, it's not just that you can um, save costs or when you can or that you can build new systems and new platforms, new services. It's also that when you have fewer humans involved, fewer fewer people, it makes sense when you have a global pandemic to to be uh, on the safe side of this. And I think with online retail and with logistics that that will be at capacity 
for most of the coming winter in the northern hemisphere we're going to see a lot of people a lot of companies and maybe a lot of politicians that will realize that the old way of delivering things just doesn't cut it anymore thank you marcel weiss for sharing your insights with us about the future of logistics and retail read more about it in the next edition of smart industry the iot business magazine thanks very much We Talk IoT, the Smart Industry Podcast, is sponsored by Microsoft. Microsoft Azure IoT Hub. Highly secure and reliable communication between your IoT application and the devices it manages. Azure IoT Hub provides a cloud-hosted solution backend to virtually connect any device. Extend your solution from the cloud to the edge with per-device authentication, built-in device management, and scaled provisioning. If you need an industrial IoT solution based on Microsoft IoT Hub, then Avnet IoT Connect is your perfect choice. A standardized way to harness IoT so your business can quickly build smart apps and solutions based on the Azure platform. Smuggling has been around ever since the first borders were established and illegal imports cost governments billions each year. Today, artificial intelligence is poised to play an important role in plugging the leaks. The border protection industry is introducing major new products and techniques that could result in more secure borders and more efficient border patrolling, says our author, Stian Overdahl, in an article for the latest edition of Smart Industry, the IoT Business Magazine. Thanks for joining us, Stian. Tell us, what role did 9-11 play in causing the authorities to beef up their efforts to tighten border protection with AI? Hi, Tim. Thanks for that. Well, obviously, 9-11 was a seminal event for uh, you know the, the world and especially um, the United States and a few other countries, and that caused them to just, com I say, completely relook at how they uh, dealt with border security and national security. And uh, automation has been a big part of that, and, and using AI to um, advance or replace a lot of things that were previously done manually. And at the same time, there's obviously been massive growth in global trade around globalization that has taken place at the same time. Does the increasing need to screen passengers boarding an aircraft or scan a ship's cargo before unloading also play a major role? One thing that we saw post 9-11 was that a lot of terrorist attacks or attempted attacks happened outside of countries' borders. For example, someone, a terrorist, would board a plane that was en route to a country like the United States and then attempt to blow up the plane in the middle of the air. So the, the push then was to move the borders to the external ports and to be able to screen passengers or before they boarded planes. Um, and it's similar in cargo, although I believe that it's not as rigorous. As you write, there's been a shift from relying on manual checks, training and instincts towards greater automation, artificial intelligence and data analysis. How does that change the way the game is played between crooks and customs officials? I think overall, the borders are much more secure today but then in some ways the game hasn't changed and that it's the old sort of story of whack-a-mole that the customs agencies get good at intercepting certain types of shipments 
and the criminals, you know, figure out what's happening and they change up their game and they look for new approaches. So certainly the borders have got more secure and, and the, the agencies involved in securing them have a, access to a lot more information and data and tools and techniques. But at the same time, obviously the criminals out there are also researching and they, they're learning uh, ways to adapt to that. And obviously the, the economies of criminality mean that you just have to get one shipment through and you can get extremely high profits, which can compensate for all the other shipments that were, were caught. The jump from manually combing through stacks of paper to automated sorting of data has been described as a, quote, game changer for border control agencies. How so? So before automation, border agents would sit there with literal, you know, stacks of paper, the bills of blading, and, and sort through them looking for what they would call abnormalities, looking for things that maybe didn't make sense, like automotive parts being shipped inside a, a refrigerated container or goods being shipped to Uh, a PO box or, or coming from a country that was known as a source country for narcotics. And, and this was all done manually as, as a boat was coming into the harbor. So essentially automating those, that process of, of looking for these abnormalities, flagging them up and putting, putting these suspicious shipments at the top of the pile just made the whole system much more rigorous, uh, you know, freed up the analysts to, to do much more um, analytical work and, and just brings a lot more sophistication and rigor to the to the border security processes. Artificial intelligence, you maintain, can increase the effectiveness of border security equipment. In what ways? There are a number of different uh, ways that this is being done. A lot of it is around imaging technologies. Um, for example, scanners at airports that are looking for weapons, or you could use a, a drone to patrol a border and, and those cameras uh, feeds could could have algorithms analyzing uh, whether people are trying to cross the border. And, and there's similar approaches around, say, maritime borders using a combination of radar and uh, videos to, to, to track boats and see if they cross a maritime border. So, so the AI is automating uh, some of these uh, analysis that would previously be done by humans or, or supplementing uh, what the humans are doing. You quote Mark Oliver Rocher product director for high-energy scanners at Smith's Detection, a manufacturer of threat detection and screening technologies. He boasts that AI can detect weapons in a picture when an operator might look at the same image and not see anything suspicious. With these big scanners and big items like a, um, a 20-foot cargo container, there, there's just a lot more complexity. It takes an analyst several minutes to, to see everything in there. So that's where Using an algorithm to scan that is, is much more efficient and, and can be quicker than a human analyst. And of course, the other aspect is that we know that when you have a, a human working a, an eight or a 12 hour shift, that their productivity or their accuracy drops off at the end, whereas, whereas an algorithm is going to maintain that accuracy the whole time. But when you talk to him, Roche also admitted that early versions of these algorithms did not perform especially well. Are they getting better? Well, they've been working on this for more than 10 years. I think they're quite confident in the accuracy of the algorithms today. But when they started off, they said they, they did, didn't perform particularly well. And the main issue there is an issue that actually affects the entire border security industry around when developing AI and imaging is that they can't get enough training data which they need to, to get the sufficient accuracy of the algorithms. You might know that when someone wants to, to build an algorithm to identify a cat, they have access to thousands or millions of images of cats. But when it's 
a specific image like a, a weapon inside a container or something more specific. There's just not that many images. So when they started off, they didn't have access to a lot of training data for their algorithms, but they did say that as soon as they were able to feed in more images to their algorithms, that their accuracy improved quite quickly. The use of biometrics for travelers obviously opens up AI opportunities, but facial recognition systems have proven faulty in the past and are highly unpopular in many countries. Do you still think that they will play a big role? Well, facial recognition is probably or definitely the most controversial area in AI. And we've seen a lot of pushback around the idea of law enforcement agencies like the police using facial recognition, and uh, there have been some large tech companies in the U.S. that have even pulled out of it this year, um, especially around all the controversies around policing. But I think it is a little bit different when it comes to borders. Um, for example, when you're protecting a border as a sovereign nation, you essentially you use every tool there is to protect that border. So I think that, that, that governments are using facial recognition technologies um, if you have one of these biometric passports with an e-chip in it, then that will have an image in it. And the other aspect, I think, is that there's less protests around things that are happening at the border. People recognize that this is a, a kind of critical use case. And at the same time, people aren't going to pick a holiday destination based on whether or not they might have their face scanned when they come to the border. I don't think it's a, a thing that people really choose or think about or have much choice when they're traveling through an international border. Authorities like the U.S.'s Customs and Border Protection have been tooling up on intelligent solutions like the Global Traveler Assessment System, or GTAS. The goal, I understand, is to give border agencies an enhanced understanding of who is trying to enter the country, allowing faster detection and identification of known threats. What new developments can we expect over the next couple of years? I think many people will have experienced having to put their data into a system before they travel to a country. And the case is that those countries are using those, that data to match it against other databases to check if there's anything suspicious about you or other passengers you're traveling with. One thing that you've probably heard about in the media are cases of mistaken identity, such as when a person has their name match against another name in a database, for example, of uh, suspected criminals or terrorists. And then that can lead to them being denied the opportunity to travel or they could get questioned at the border for several hours or even longer. So one, one use of AI is to, be, to comb through those databases and, and clean them up and find ways to reconcile and match those databases so that there's less chance of mistaken identity happening. And there's also more chance that border agents have more confidence and accuracy uh, in their systems. Thank you, Stian Overdahl, for sharing your insights about how the border protection industry is using AI and new techniques to make borders more secure and traveling more safe. Thanks. Sure, thanks. And now, one more thing. Dryad Networks, an environmental IoT startup, plans to develop a large-scale network for the early detection of wildfires. Dryad's digital forest solution is designed to help public and private forest owners monitor, analyze, and protect the world's largest, most remote forests and tackle the devastating impact of wildfires on the environment. Dryad's large-scale IoT solution uses a network of sensors for ultra-early detection of wildfires in under 60 minutes, even in remote areas. 
By contrast, camera and satellite-based solutions can take several hours or even days to identify a fire because they rely on the smoke plume developing enough to be detected from a long distance. The team successfully tested a product in a forest in Germany in May 2020 and has since secured 10 letters of intent from forest owners in Germany and Africa. Dryad's vision is to digitize the world's forests and help protect and regrow the world's largest carbon sinks. Plans include supporting sustainable forest management by providing forest owners with insights into the health, microclimate, and growth of their forests. This will also help them manage their estates more efficiently and profitably. That was We Talk IoT, the Smart Industry Podcast. You can read all the latest from Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine, by visiting our website at www.smart-industry.net, where you'll find hundreds of feature articles about everything from smart manufacturing and cognitive computing to autonomous driving and how IoT and AI are making business smarter. There, you can sign up to receive our newsletter, Smart Industry Updates. I'm Tim Cole. See you back next month when, once again, we talk IoT.